think it feels abrupt because uh, many of us had experienced uh, controls for so long and they've become such a normal part of our lives. But uh, as you noted, things have been changing for several months. We've seen step by step uh, relaxing. In the past three years of fighting COVID-19, I think in uh, many hospitals, community levels uh, and community clinics, that we do have a certain preparedness in dealing with the large uh, outbreak of uh, the individual who becoming infected. Uh, I think the key is that we need to devise a hierarchical policy or hierarchical exclusion plan to deal with the people who are infected, but with a different severity of, of the symptoms. Uh, I think this is so-called structured management. It's very critical. That's um, pretty much our guiding principle that uh, human life comes first. One particular challenge uh, I think the uh, government has to tackle is, you know, when, when we are trying to uh, go back to, you know, a more normal life, or relaxing policy, we have to take care of the pressures that the elderly populations encounter. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to Chat Lounge. I'm Tu Yun. China's mainland is on its way to reopening all sectors of its society and economy as Beijing continues to ease its COVID policy. But some people from outside the country warn the policy shift could lead to millions of deaths and uncertain economic future. How likely is that going to happen? Is Beijing capable of handling the upcoming challenges? Joining our discussion today are Dr. Tommy Tsang-Yuk-Lam, Associate Professor, Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences, University of Hong Kong, Professor Wu Jiwei, Director of the Center for Public Health Research, Nanjing University, and Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University. Professor Mahoney was previously trained as an epidemiologist and worked for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. A warm welcome to you all, gentlemen. Over the past few weeks, China's mainland has successively loosened COVID restrictions, with the latest being dropping mandatory testing and stopping releasing comprehensive data on new cases. So let me start with Joseph. As an expat living in Shanghai who was trained as an epidemiologist, do you think the policy shift was a little bit abrupt? Well, you know, uh, I think it feels abrupt because uh, many of us had experienced uh, controls for so long and they've become such a normal part of our lives. But uh, as you noted, things have been changing for several months. And uh, particularly since, you know, we experienced uh, the lockdown in Shanghai for two months early this year, we've seen step-by-step relaxing. Uh, Sometimes uh, the relaxes were were, uh, modest. And sometimes they were, uh, let's say, ineffectual. For example, we would have uh, two days of rest if we had a close contact in the building, but you could still get uh, YMI or food delivered, even have people come up to your uh, building door and, and hand you things. So, uh, you know, it was we, we were bordering on uh, whether or not some of the controls were still really being implemented in a meaningful way. So I think that we've been seeing uh, a lot of changes uh, already, and we'd already started seeing uh, increasing cases uh, nationally. And above all, we started seeing a spike in cases in Beijing, which had previously been uh, you know, one of the most protected cities in the country. So, you know, with all of this going on, I think that uh, we were in a long period of uh, relaxing. 
At the same time, you know, we saw zero COVID countries relaxing elsewhere in the world. And uh, we saw the emergence of this so-called COVID soup of multiple highly infective but uh, low mortality mutations running around the world. And this meant it was, you know, increasingly difficult to mount effective controls in China uh, that didn't resort to harsh lockdowns, uh, which, again, we could no longer really afford. Another issue is that, uh, you know, it, it appears abrupt, but uh, in fact, we had some relaxing of policies that were being promoted at the national level, but didn't seem to be really being carried out faithfully at the local levels uh, where, where there seems to be some stalling. This is because there was, I think, some confusion over whether local officials would still be held responsible for surges, as was previously the case. So it's possible that the, you know, the ability to step down in an orderly way from the national level was being thwarted, and we were sort of left with a, an all-or-nothing approach. I think also there's a reason to believe that um, there's some optimization in timing, that there was a desire certainly to get past the Congress, uh, but that we were also reaching a tipping point with, with the increase in, in infections uh, domestically, and that uh, this was probably as good a time as any to go ahead and, and let go. So, uh, you know, we can carry some of this burden now, uh, maybe peak before Chinese New Year. If we have to carry some of the, the burden during the new year, that might limit the economic impact. Further, this time, it probably minimizes impacts on schools and universities, and we might see uh, the worst of this passing and, and stabilization before the two sessions, which I'm sure uh, Beijing would like to see. So, yeah, I think that that's, I think it appears abrupt, it feels abrupt, but it's been building for some time. And it seems um, Joseph just mentioned reasons from all aspects. But um, Zhi Wei, do you think the mainlanders are ready for this? What do you think about the timing? Well, I think that uh, we are ready. Uh, so basically, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one is that uh, since this year, if you look at it, how the, um, the Omicron outbreaks all over the country, basically, it give us a, a very strong signal that uh, the current uh, zero COVID policy is uh, not going to uh, working at controlling the virus transmission because uh, we have implemented all very stringent uh, controlling uh, intervention policies, but still uh, the virus popped up uh, in various different cities. A very clear indication. The second is that a lot of clinical data coming uh, back from uh, within China and also from China indicating that the virus is no longer as pathogenic as the previous ones. So um, the economic burden basically is, is a huge factor here that you can't sustain this type of a controlling policy. Of course, over the month, we saw that the policies sometimes strengthened, sometimes uh, relaxed. And people do have anticipations that we are going to open up. So that's uh, pretty much uh, in the societal level, uh, that's what people are expecting. But of course, I have to see that this sudden lift of a nuclear acid testing and you know opening up is a quite a surprising move. Uh, people, are, including myself, uh, just uh, caught off guard. Today, I chat with my colleagues in the Gulu Hospital, which is uh, an uh, affiliated hospital of Nanjing University Medical School. And uh, apparently, the hospitals were also in a kind of a quite messy uh, shift in terms of how to deal with uh, this this new policy when people are identified to be COVID-19 infected. And they have to go through all sorts of procedural things to either admit them or either you know, send them back uh, home. And there are a lot of things to, to, to be done. So basically, nothing will prepare in advance. And, you know, to address your question, in the past three years of fighting COVID-19, I think in many hospitals, community levels, and community clinics, 
that we do have a certain preparedness in dealing with the large uh, outbreak of the individual who becoming infected. Uh, I think the key is that we need to devise a hierarchical policy or hierarchical exclusion plan to deal with the people who are infected, but with a different severity of the symptom. I think this is so-called structure management. It's very critical to absorb or to treat the, the sick people, but still we should you know, release a certain hospital capacity to deal with more increase of the patient. Then do you think it's fair to say that um, after three years of messy management, the pandemic is finally here on the mainland? Well, I don't think this is a, a fair assessment saying that in the past two years, particularly before the year 2021, China's uh, policy in controlling COVID-19 infection transmission, I think, uh, done tremendous job in saving life and re- reduce the infection. This is, uh, I think, we have to admit, give credit to the policy. But uh, since moving to this year, year 2000. 22, uh, when Omicron became the dominant variant, the situation changed because Omicron is transmitted so efficiently, doesn't cause severe diseases in most of uh, the infected people. Then I think the current policy is no longer working effectively and is no longer necessary. So you have to look at it in two different phases with quite a different assessment. We have to give credit to the policy, which is the effective control and intervene the COVID-19. That's my basic opinion. Mm. Julie just mentioned how messy some uh, hospitals could be when it tried to um, manage to uh, arrange the shifts. I guess um, Hong Kong also experienced this um, phase after uh, relaxing its COVID rules earlier in the year. So tell me, how did local authorities manage to do that? Right. Uh, So in May, uh, the COVID in Hong Kong has gone down uh, to a relatively low level, to about uh, 200, 300 cases a day. And it started to rebound in uh, June, July, August, reaching about uh, 10,000 cases daily. Also possibly because of the introductions and expansion of new Omicron variants. And uh, the most important thing here is to uh, prevent the burnout of the hospital and healthcare systems, uh, where you know uh, the uh, healthcare staffs, professionals can focus on res- uh, the resources to treat and save life from the uh, severe patients. And uh, Hong Kong government, uh, at that time, uh, we opened uh, Asia Expo Center to provide uh, extra temporary beds for patients with mild COVID. And also, hospital also uh, cut uh, on emergency services uh, to prioritize uh, resources and manpower to treat uh, severe patients. Um, and government and others, uh, in the industrial companies, also provide online uh, consultations to COVID patients and deliver drugs to, to their home uh, to provide some timely treatments. And here, you know, mitigating uh, severe infections for COVID is, is a key to reduce the, uh, the death cases. And obviously, uh, timely uh, treatment is, is a key. Uh, vaccination is also an uh, effective way of reducing severity. So boosters of vaccinations definitely are favorable. And especially in those elderly who, uh, who are the most uh, uh, vulnerable populations to severe and fatal infections. And uh, looking back to the uh, fifth wave in Hong Kong, so we, we have a pretty big lessons where we uh, the, the wave uh, hit Hong Kong when uh, particularly the elderly population is not ready for the transmissions because uh, the vaccination rate uh, was you know, relatively low at that time. And so uh, we had a, a bad numbers of uh, fatal case in elderly populations. Mm, and um, 
Joseph, what's your observation in Shanghai? Because I think Shanghai has not yet reached that peak, right? So how hospitals have been managed in Shanghai right now? Is there any over overwhelming、uh, things happening? Yeah, to be honest with you, I don't have I don't have contacts with the hospitals, and I haven't been observing them firsthand.、Um, I haven't seen any reports that we've had those sorts of problems. I have anecdotally talked to a very large number of people who seem to be mainly experiencing minor symptoms.、Uh, the worst that I've heard has been, you know, three days of、uh, aches and pains and fever.、Uh, one friend lost taste and, and sense of smell. But we did have a, a practice、uh, at the university. You know, some of the universities in Beijing and in、uh, Dongbei, and, and I'm sure other places in China, they sent students home early, and they've shifted to online courses.、Uh, we've also shifted to online courses here at at East China Normal, but we did not send students home. But what we did do was、uh, convert some first floors of、uh, some dorms into makeshift、uh, hospitals to make sure that、uh, if students were sick, and you know, of course, many of them have roommates. That we could bring them out and take care of them, with the understanding that most of them would not need、uh, emergent care. And again, most of the people that I know that I'm speaking with, they're they're not going to test.、Uh, they're testing at home. There is a shortage, I think, of home tests, and this it would have been helpful if these could have been disseminated as they once were by residents' committees, so that we could have more responsible home management. But、uh, yeah, I don't see any reports yet that we're really struggling. Although again, I don't have access to that kind of information.、Mm-mm. I do think、um, it's a good solution. Tommy just mentioned about vaccination, especially for the elderly. And、uh, on the mainland, th- I'm not sure, quite sure if it's totally different. But days ago, when I went out, I heard a, a story、uh, from the taxi driver who told me that、uh, he's got a neighbor who's over eighty. And、um, in the first three rounds of、uh, vaccination, the old neighbor wouldn't go for any. And when he heard that the government was about to reopen, the day he heard it, he went for vaccination. So, Doctor Wu, how can we, you know, do with this group of people、um, during this whole process of reopening? Do you think? We need to pay any particular attention for a smooth policy transition. Yeah, definitely.、Uh, I think you know once we open up the society and、uh, remove the nucleosid testing, the key focus should be on the elderly people who have not received any vaccines and those individuals who have some basic medical conditions. Uh, in China, the overall vaccination rates are pretty good. If you look at the, the complete vaccination percentage, it's about ninety percent. In the elderly population, particularly those who are over eighty years old, the vaccination rates are not that good. It depends on regions and provinces. They actually ranges before sixty to seventy percent. So that actually is an、uh, alarming situation because,、uh, from Hong Kong's data, it's very clear that. The COVID-19 Omicron deaths mostly happen in the people who are over 80 years old without the vaccination. In Hong Kong, it, in this particular population,、uh, the case of fertility rate is is 16.2 percent. So it's a very high.、I、give you one example what it means for China. Nanjing is a with 8 million population. The population with 80 years old or older is、uh, close to 400,000. So if you take Nanjing's vaccination rate is seventy percent in this particular age group. That would mean that it's a hundred twenty thousand individuals who are not vaccinated at all. So, if you take Hong Kong's 
case of fertility rates in this particular population, that means that if they are all infected at the same time, so the, the death case would be close to 20,000. That's a huge number. Of course, in the real world scenarios, that, uh, it's unlikely that all those people will be infected. But this is something that actually gives us an indication what would happen if people remain not vaccinated. So that's why you see that from early December, you see overall in the country that the vaccination push in the elderly population or in the individuals who have basic medical conditions such as immune compromised individuals are being uh, accelerated. So that's a very good news. I think it's very, very critical that you know, once we're opening up, two things we need to do. One is that we need to vaccinate. Uh, persuaded those elderly people to take the vaccines because the vaccines overall, they are safe and the adverse effects are very minor. And the second is that uh, the government should push for the booster shots for people who are, you know, other elderly people like uh, from 60 to, to 70 age group. Uh, this group actually um, also share relatively high case for uh, fertility rates. So those are the things uh, we definitely need to do. One thing is that uh, I think we desperately need to do, as you just mentioned, that the elderly people refuse to take a vaccine. I think there are uh, a lot of misconceptions or misinformation circulating in the society, and uh, those information are not accurate. I think it's critical for the authority and the healthcare personnel, the workers, to do a good public relationship and to push for people or educated people to understand that the vaccines are safe, tell people the real effect that them, what the side effects of the vaccine would be and what the benefits it will bring. I think that those are very critical and we need to do it immediately. Mm. Do you think the authorities need to introduce any incentives to encourage um, vaccination among the elderly uh, as what a lot of you know local authorities have done already? Well, There's no well, need at all. Know, well, you know, persuading people to take vaccine is a tough job. It will take time. But I think, you know, we could do it in a more creative way, such as, uh, you know, uh, Singapore has a very good program for elderly people to take vaccines. Basically, Singapore's uh, program says that if you are fully vaccinated, then if you contract COVID-19 and become sick, then the government will pay all your medical bills. If you refuse to take a vaccine without medical reasons, then if you are infected and become sick, then you have to, you know, pay out of your own pocket. So this is a kind of incentive. People with certain percentage people will think and then take the vaccine. I think this is the kind of thing actually the authority can do. Indeed. I, I, can, I, can I add to that? Sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I think that um, what works in Singapore, and, and you know, there have been different incentive schemes that have been considered, and certainly we've seen them in China. And we we even had some elderly people that, that uh, I know personally in Shanghai. I mean, you mentioned to you the, the, the person in Beijing saying, okay, I'm going to go get vaccinated now that the government's dropping controls because, you know, previously people didn't feel that this risk was real because the controls were largely effective. And now it's, it's okay waiting to get infected, basically. Uh, so people now have this compelling incentive. The part of the problem, of course, is that in order to get the vaccine, you now have to go out and expose yourself as it's running wild. And furthermore, you have to wait two weeks before you start to develop antibodies. So all of that's kind of uh, uh, at play. And I think there are ways that, that you know we can introduce, say, door-to-door service of, of vaccines that, that limit exposure to old people, especially given the fact that a lot of people right now are staying at home in order to avoid going out and getting it. And this is not going to be a winning strategy long-term. But I, I think that what works in Singapore would not work 
in China. You know, Singapore is so much smaller and they have sort of a, a very different capacity and, and local education level. We have so much more diversity here. Although I have been very concerned whether or not we have done enough in China to promote vaccines and to disseminate vaccines, we did do, I think, quite a bit more than what we saw in the U.S., number one. And number two, I'm glad that we did not do, as some people called, uh, for coercing people to get vaccines. I think mm. that, that would have been uh, 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 something that would have uh, created a lot of backlash and resentment. I think the government wisely avoided that kind of uh, policy. And uh, furthermore, I think it would be wise for them to avoid telling people that if you get sick, we're not going to take care of you. We're not going to help pay for your costs. I think that would that would be another level of irresponsibility. In other words, you would have people who were sick and at home and potentially dying at home instead of going to the hospital if they weren't able to, to pay for that cost, because we know a lot of Chinese hospitals ask for money up front at this point. So I would, I would agree that uh, vaccines remain uh, an imperfect but necessary aid for limiting mortality, especially in vulnerable groups. But uh, I'm not sure, and, and although I'm, I'm confident that we, that we could have done some things better, uh, I'm grateful that we haven't pursued some of the more aggressive policies. Yeah, indeed. Um, a lot of thoughts needed before specific measures are taken. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. But now let's move on to talk about the impact of uh, reopening. Well, a, a study based on China's um, vaccination rates in March published in, in Nature Medicine in May, found policy shift at that point on the mainland could generate 1.6 million deaths. Some predicted um, 2 million, and some even say 4 million people might die after the restrictions are lifted. Um, I think they based the whole thing on what's happened in the States, given China's population is, I think it's four and a half times um, that of, um, of the States. And they also cited um, Hong Kong as a cautionary example. So do you expect a similar scenario for the mainland? Maybe we start with um, Tommy on this question. Right. So, you know, I think the estimate at the Armenian level is realistic. Um, but like, I personally inclined to be more optimistic as I believe, uh, you know, with more knowledge and experience that, that the government and the people accumulate when um, the epidemic progress in the community, we will find a better way um, to cope with the infections. Uh, and, and such dynamics are usually is hard, it's harder to be predict and uh, consider in uh, you know, the disease prediction model that uh, you just mentioned in the papers. And you know, if, if you look at the paper, it also provide estimate for the uh, death when you have some uh, interventions carrying out. For example, vaccination, uh, vaccinating the elderly is actually substantially uh, you know, uh, help with uh, reducing the uh, total death numbers and you know that echo you know uh, the comments uh, and experience that uh, we have in Hong Kong uh, that uh, protecting uh, the elderly from the severe fatal infections are, are critical and Joseph well you know it's it's very difficult because when when we start looking at the other areas that had zero COVID policies uh, they, you know it's New Zealand Taiwan and Hong Kong and these are really small jurisdictions compared to what we uh, face here on the mainland. And we see that in those areas uh, that it's 70 to 90 days before we see stabilization. I would expect that will take longer uh, given the massive population here and, and the tremendous diversity in the country. 
Um, I would like to be optimistic. And, and to be honest with you, as someone who's sitting here waiting to get infected, I really want to be optimistic about some things. But I am concerned that we could see surges, particularly in uh, you know second tier or, or third tier, or what we used to call second and third tier cities and, and below. Um, or rural areas. Uh, or rural areas where we might not have much care at all, mm. where we do have a lot of elderly people who won't be able to get access to the to the type of care they need. The problem here, though, is and this is the point that I want to elucidate, is that you know we're looking at data from Hong Kong, which is a you know a developed modern city. It's it's Chinese in most senses of the word, and so it, it gives us on the one hand some good comparative perspectives, especially because they were in zero COVID and then left it. Uh, but then, you know, we, we're also getting all this data from the United States. And, and that data is really compromised by the fact that we never had mass testing in the U.S. We don't know what the real incidence rates were. We don't know what the real case fatality rates are. We don't know whether or not we're looking at people who, you know, are dying from um, which uh, variant or whether or not they got multiple infections. We do know that a lot of people got multiple infections. We don't know, for example, whether or not uh, issues like long COVID, is, is this primarily associated with BA1, BA2, BA3, subvariants, or some intersection because people get multiple infections. This is you know, one of the big issues because uh, we, we, we estimate, or some estimates indicate, that as somewhere around uh, 70 to 80% of the US population has been infected. And this isn't according to testing, but, but due to blood surveys, because we've never had mass testing. And that 20%, somewhere uh, around 20% of those who were infected have experienced uh, some type of uh, long COVID uh, with one of the, the more common symptoms being uh, cognitive decline. We don't have baselines on how smart people were before they got infected versus you know what sort of uh, decline they experienced after. So uh, all of this is, is a mishmash of data that, that it's really difficult for us to draw concrete lessons for China and help us uh, craft responsible policies because China is such an outlier as a, a massive developing country compared to the other areas that uh, pursue these policies. Uh, the other thing is to remember that, you know, we already have studies indicating that uh, a big part, maybe up to a third of the labor shortage right now being experienced in the United States is due to disability associated with COVID infection um, uh, and especially long COVID. And uh, that uh, what we're seeing is um, um, that people who've been infected have an exponential increase in uh, the, the risk associated with uh, early onset Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Finally, I think we have to reflect on another statistic. Again, it's hard to apply this to China uh, with, with certainty, but on average, according to current studies, uh, people have lost uh, 10 years of life. In other words, it's not just people near the end of their life, but uh, a much uh, larger number in many cases. Uh, in fact, uh, of, of the five of my friends who died in the United States, two of them were my age or younger. Uh, I'm 52, and um, the rest were in their 70s. And, you know, we've seen, uh, as a result, an overall decline in life expectancy uh, now dropping lower than uh, mainland as a result of uh, uh, the disastrous policies associated with trying to control and contain COVID-19. But, you know, again, how do we take all of that data from the United States and have it help us understand how we should uh, adjust policies now it's extremely complicated mm, true and uh Jue, can, can i can i add a point uh on the based on the situation in hong kong sure 
Yeah, so uh, you know, Joseph just mentioned about you know uh, Hong Kong is uh, you know, very well developed in terms of the uh, you know, cities uh, the developments, uh, the healthcare systems. Um, that's very true. Uh, but here we also have very serious uh, vaccine hesitancy uh, issues here, uh, especially uh, in those elderly. Uh, so uh, in the beginning of the uh, fifth wave, uh, the Omicron fifth wave, we have you know uh, the uh, elderly, especially those really old uh, over 80s. Uh, we only have about 20 you know, uh, percent of uh, population, those populations that are vaccinated. And even until now, that population still uh, only have about uh, 70s uh, being uh, vaccinated, fully uh, vaccinated. So, you know, that actually uh, go back to the points of how should we actually promote the vaccinations, convey uh, you know, uh, messages, you know, do educations. And, and I think uh, incentive is, uh, is a way of doing this, but also, you know, uh, it's also important to re-understand how the informations and hesitancy actually occurred. And particularly, for example, in a, in a society, in a, in a community, who, who, who are actually the most uh, trusted, uh, you know, persons that can help to, to deliver the correct message of vaccinations to communities. So uh, I, I think these, uh, you know, need research to, to understand these, uh, such that the, uh, you know, the vaccine campaign and uh, all the policy can be uh, carried out in, a, in an effective way. Yeah, that's true. Um, the more people are vaccinated, less people will be getting close to death. But Chuei, um, I understand you've been traveling around the country, even during um, this um, pandemic period over the past three years for field investigation. So what's your estimation of um, of the death toll probably on the mainland after its reopening? Well, um, it's, uh, it's very hard to so what would be the uh, outcome of uh, this opening up? Uh, but, but as you mentioned that in this national medicine paper, I think there are a few aspect issues uh, quite different from about you know six or seven months ago. First, the, the vaccine increased uh, quite a lot. The second is that uh, more percentage of people are already taking the booster shots. The other thing is that I absolutely agree with uh, what Joseph mentioned that it's um, you know it's a statistical model. It's what would be the uh, the real situation. But the one thing I think we need to uh, keep in mind is that China is a quite a different society from many other countries. That it's a but the power it's it's a very powerful in terms of mobilizing resources, mobilizing personnel, and when deal with the disasters. China, I would think it is among the best in the world. The government has such a tremendous authority in doing so. If you look at look at what happened in Hong Kong, is although it's a relatively small population, but the the healthcare system was completely overwhelmed. What you saw uh, afterwards is that the uh, the mainland sent the medical uh, personnel's devices and the resources to to support, and also you know uh, in the past three years in the main uh, in China, when the outbreaks happen in one city, usually you will see that the government quickly mobilize resources in you know, other regions to send in the help. So that's actually one of the very effective coordination and cooperation in dealing with the pandemic. So let's think about once we're opening up and when people become infected, uh, but the infection will not happen overnight. It, it's a gradual process. In some areas and cities, will be more people infected, in some are less. So 
the government of the two is that by mobilizing the regions or the cities uh, which have certain resources to help the others. So by doing this, basically, then we could flatten the, the case curve and flatten the death rates and stretch out the epidemic in the country to a longer period. So if we're doing that, we the more effectively, efficiently utilize our medical care services. So I agree with the uh, with Tommy and Joseph that uh, I'm optimistic in dealing with uh, the and the potential increase in the infected cases in this opening up period. Then, how long do you think the mainlanders can resume their normal life after this whole reopening coming into effect? It is a, this is very hard to tell uh, because. Uh, one issue we have to bear in mind is that China is not a, a completed opening up right now. It's basically taking a, a stepwise approach. In some areas, in some professions, such as universities, actually you don't see a complete opening up. There is still a certain kind of intervention restrictions. So, you know, I would predict is that although the nuclear acid test is no longer required, and once you're going into subway and getting on the um, uh, express train, uh, you don't need to present your nuclear acid testing results. But in certain, uh, in your you know, companies, uh, in universities, in certain uh, government administrative offices, you still have to show you know, your status of uh, uh, infection. So one thing what I need to say is that uh, from the, both the central government level and the local administration, they are still trying to formulate the best policy and the proper intervention approach to maximize the effect of this opening up effect, but minimize the end potential infection and its effect. So to address your answer your question, how long will we come back into normal life? I mean, frankly, I don't really know because all the predictions in the three-year pandemic, very few of them are correct. Most of them failed to predict. About two years ago, we thought that the virus will be going away when the weather warms up, and it didn't. And we thought that, uh, you know, if we uh, control people's movement and mobility, then the virus will be, its transmission will be cut off. It didn't. So we have to, you know, keep an open mind and uh, basically use all the common sense to coordinate with the current policy and trying to minimize the disruption of normal life. If Hong Kong's fifth wave of outbreaks, any indication, if you look at that, actually, the whole peak cases happened within two months. That, you know, in the downstream, that we are going to have a number of holiday seasons, uh, the Chinese New Year, you know, uh, those are the uh, time you will see large um, people gathering and also uh, tremendous human mobility in the country. So I would see that, you know, um, in January, February, you will see a lot of newly infected cases. So that's what we have to you know, keep in mind. Mm. Tommy, has uh, life in, or your life there in Hong Kong um, returned to normal already? What's happened in your city? Yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I'm sure, you know, um, myself, of course, uh, is very excited. You know, uh, you know, with all the uh, travel restrictions now, very much, you know, uh, relaxed. And um, in general, you know, Hong Kong, you know, people have been under quite strict control policy, and and we 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 have kind of like. Uh, uh, you haven't dropped all the restrictions, right? You, you, for instance, you yeah, have all, to but right. most, most, yeah, mm. most already, yeah. And the issue is, if 
you're talking about uh, because there, there there is a kind of downtime uh, in terms of the uh, COVID uh, cases in Hong Kong, right? And so at, at that time, uh, you know, the governments have uh, you know trying to reopen the uh, you know cities by relaxing uh, many of the restrictions that we have. Uh, for example, the uh, Hong Kong catering uh, dine-in service uh, that was banned beyond uh, 6 p.m. in early June, June, uh, January uh, when we have uh, experienced a Omicron wave. And uh, it was relaxed uh, back to 10 p.m. in April and then furthermore to midnight, uh, we're opening bars, karaoke uh, rooms in May. Where we, we have seen you know, news reporting people being very excited uh, with these uh, activity uh, coming back. And um, although I don't have uh, exact data about the, you know, the, uh, this type of resuming activities, how, how does it you know, really uh, help with the economic, uh, you know, for example, business activity, et cetera. But the, but the public mobility data from uh, Google that you, all of us can see, are, uh, there are apparent rebounds of the visits to retail and recreational place uh, by the uh, citizens uh, from 40% below the baseline to about 10% uh, below baseline. Uh, from March to June during the uh, kind of recovery uh, uh, period that we have in Hong Kong. So um, you know, imagine uh, the, if a city uh, like Hong Kong uh, having an outbreak uh, and then it would take several months, a couple months to, to get, uh, you know, regain the activities after the peaks, uh, etc. And, and these are all about, you know, the kind of uh, internal economic activities. For external, you know, those are affected by you know others uh, in policy like uh, travel-related policy, uh, which is not the first policy that is being uh, relaxed. So recently, uh, we have those uh, uh, traveler quarantine policy relaxed uh, since last month, and uh, it takes some time for people outside Hong Kong to know and understand the policy change, and then plan the travel. Uh, schedules and 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 therefore you know the rebounds in these uh, external econ economics activities will take longer that we we'll expect but now nowadays you know the information dissemination is fast right so uh, you know people get know about these and will uh, come back to visit and, and so mm. um, Joseph do you have any estimation based on your previous yeah yeah I, I think there, there are two points here I think uh, earlier I, I raised the statistic that we've seen that uh, countries or, or areas leaving zero COVID again New Zealand Taiwan and Hong Kong that uh, we've seen some form of stabilization within 70 to 90 days and, and that we should expect that to not be, uh, th that might be a, a somewhat reliable indicator for some parts of China, but not necessarily all of China. Uh, we know that the data that we're seeing that's been uh, derived from some of the Baidu-related searches is showing uh, different peaks at different points in time. For example, the, the uh, peak uh, projected for Shanghai currently is uh, January 6th. That may be off uh, or an unreliable figure given the way that we're estimating it. Nevertheless, I think your your question previously was when can we expect to to return to normal, and I think it's important to to keep two things in mind, and not not here to be too negative about things, but um, it's not just one and done. In other words, you don't just get infected and then you're in the clear. We could see people having multiple infections over the next uh, couple of years and uh, learning how to deal with this. Uh, the other thing, though, is. You know, a big part of uh, the value of China's zero COVID policies is that it, it was a very effective uh, suppression of the emergence of new mutations. And although it's generally the case that uh, mutations tend to uh, evolve in a way that uh, 
are less pathogenic, that, that cause less death and, and morbidity and mortality, so forth and so on, that that's not always the case, right? In other words, you can have something that comes along and um, accounts for a significant uptick. Part of the problem, though, is because we now have this COVID soup, we don't have one strain becoming dominant and then sort of crowding out others. Uh, as a result, uh, you know, we might have a new variant that pops up somewhere and uh, spreads quickly and, and has uh, higher mortality rates than we uh, might anticipate, given the numbers that we currently have associated with the current subvariants of Omicron that, that appear to be uh, driving the new infections. So I think we have to uh, prepare ourselves for not just getting sick once, but uh, getting sick uh, multiple times. And what might that mean as we encounter cumulative infections? In other words, if I get sick two or three times, how does that uh, uh, affect my overall health? Uh, I might, you know, recover from the first one, but am I diminished in some way? Uh, and does that leave me less well prepared or, or better prepared to fight a second infection uh, and so on? And whether or not uh, we're going to have uh, some significant increase in, in mutations uh, as a result of China sort of rejoining the gene pool of uh, humanity in terms of uh, uh, COVID spread and, and transmission. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. And another influence um, this reopening will have on um, the mainland is obviously a economic um, rebound at a faster pace. We've seen uh, Morgan Stanley upgrading its forecast for the mainland's GDP growth in 2023 from um, 5% to 5.4%. But during this reopening, what would be the biggest potential challenge that might affect the result coming from this reopening then, Joseph? Well, you know, I think I think it's clear, as Dr. Lam mentioned, from Hong Kong that we can expect to see some relatively quick turnaround, not, uh, you know, necessarily reaching the previous baseline, uh, but we should expect some sort of bounce um, as uh, people um, uh, move through this, as they become more secure in their job, they have more freedom to travel, uh, they're more likely to, to, to spend money, and uh, I'm sure that will be welcomed. The other side of it, though, is that, you know, we can't expect some areas or, or some parts of the economy to respond positively uh, overnight. Uh, we know that a lot of uh, small businesses and, and small operators were devastated by these policies. We know that it's been difficult, although the, although the government has tried to implement policies aimed with uh, supporting them, that uh, in, in many cases it was too little too late and and you can't simply just will these these um, businesses back into being with some sort of policy adjustment now. So I think that uh, we're going to have to to wait. You know, bear in mind that, that small businesses were already in trouble in China due to online shopping, delivery services, uh, which were favoring margins that were only really affordable by much bigger operators. And, and that this has disproportionately affected uh, women who were often uh, uh, people who had started small businesses uh, and who were running them. So this is going to continue to be a, a matter of concern. And, and third, again, it's difficult to know uh, um, I, although long COVID uh, appears to be absolutely a real thing, uh, how long does it last? Who does it affect? Which age groups does it affect? Again, th there's a, a study in the U.S. suggesting that uh, a third of the uh, current employment shortage is due to long COVID, but also we have uh, a lot of people missing work 
on a regular basis because of, uh, of just COVID infection. So is this going to continue to be a drag uh, or will it be a drag on the Chinese economy as it moves forward? Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, we were uh, you know, uh, experiencing problems with uh, uh, unemployment uh, before we relaxed controls. I don't want to say that's the, the silver lining here, but, uh, but uh, maybe it will impact us less. Hmm. And a final question to all of you. You all just uh, mentioned how challenging or what kind of challenges the mainland could face um, after the reopening. What do you think would be the biggest challenge after that? We know that obviously we are going to experience some ups and downs and turbulence. And is Beijing capable of handling the challenge? So shall we start with um, Tommy? Right. So uh, I I think you know the the challenges that Joseph and uh, Zui already mentioned. You know some of those, and I I, I particularly want to um, point out uh, one particular challenge or uh, issues that uh, I think the uh, government has to to tackle is that uh, you know when when we are trying to uh, go back to you know a more normal life or you know relaxing policy. We have to take care of the pressures that the, the elderly populations encountering, because uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, the society in the society, elderly population is you know often a uh, underrepresented populations. If a if a city or if a place get reopened and you know uh, embrace the COVID, although it's uh, mild infections in majority of populations. The elderly actually has a big pressure because uh, they they it's obvious the the the, the viral infections is uh, more severe to 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 them, so um, we have to balance the expectation between the younger populations and also the the senior populations, who actually would be the most affected during the reopening of the uh, of the place. There have been you know reports of increased. Depressions, uh, you know, psychological problems in uh, elder uh, populations during the uh, under the COVID uh, because of fear of uh, infections, deaths, etc. You know, uh, of course, uh, the, you know these uh, you know have to you know strike a balance uh, to ensure you know the the country is uh, moving forward in an effective way. Yeah. Do you think Beijing is capable of handling the situation? Well, I think so. Um, I think uh, you know the initial COVID, uh, you know the zero COVID uh, policy already demonstrate you know determinations of the uh, governments to you know protect the elderly, protect those uh, vulnerable uh, populations, and um, I'm sure you know uh, the governments uh, have uh, you know are caring of uh, you know these populations. And from my my own experience, that the elderly populations communities uh, seems to be quite uh, uh, well kind of connected in mainland cities. And um, I, I I think you know those uh, support from the peers and also uh, you know many support from the uh, down to the local communities, you know, the community centers, the community associations, uh, where you know they provide the support, psychological support, and um, and different other advisory support to the uh, seniors. I, I think I think those would be very effective uh, uh, undertaking in uh, mainland uh, settings. Okay, Joseph. 
Yeah, I, on the whole, I agree with uh, what Dr. Lam and what and what uh, Joey said earlier about the incredible capacity of of uh, the Chinese system to respond to to crises. Um, and uh, uh, it, you know, it's, it sometimes shows up a little bit late, a week or two late, but uh, it does show up and, and get things under control eventually. Uh, I think the the concerns that that we need to focus on right now, obviously, uh, minimizing morbidity and mortality, uh, and being ready to support those who may be affected by long COVID. Uh, ensuring that uh, they have the support they need, that they're not facing discrimination. We know that there were some laws that were proposed earlier this year to make sure that there was no discrimination uh, against people, employment discrimination against people who uh, had uh, been infected. We also need to do a better job of of ensuring that people have access uh, to home tests and basic medicine so they can be more confident and uh, responsible fighting this at home. Uh, we do need to keep pressing uh, vaccine development and dissemination, um, but we also need to do a better job of communicating the science. I think by and large, uh, the Chinese government at both the national and local level has done uh, a much better job than most countries in communicating facts and figures associated with infection and suppression efforts, but they haven't always done a good job explaining uh, how the science has informed their policymaking. And I think this has uh, sometimes compromised public trust, and that will need to uh, be be fixed as we move forward, because, uh, you know, this is not the last novel outbreak that uh, we're going to have. There's some evidence to suggest that these are correlated with climate change. It's not the first coronavirus uh, outbreak that we've seen. Um, and so, you know, we need to build on this experience positively and be prepared for whatever comes next. Mm. And last but not least, Jiwei, please. In a previously, the the government takes care of everything, uh, how to deal with quarantine and how you're going to move around, what what kind of uh, requirement you need to present, whatever you know, etc. But now the government suddenly says that okay, well you know your health is your own own business. You have to take care of yourself. I fully agree with uh, uh, Tommy uh, and uh, Joseph's points, but. I want to add is that uh, it's a very, very critical at this stage that the government should disseminate the information, uh, particularly need to prepare so-called information package and the guidelines for people who are becoming infected and what what they need to do. Uh, basically, you can see that people are uh, in the uh, in the panic status. Initially, we expect that once we're opening up, people will be really thrilled and, uh, and coming out to celebrate and going into restaurants and, and the traveling. But we didn't didn't see that. What happened is that once the government says that, okay, we, uh, we no longer check the nuclear acid, you can go around, people thought, what's going on? How I'm going to deal with the, the infection? So they are very cautious. And if you go into uh, pharmacies, you will find that the medicines for fever coughing, inflammation, that's just a completely gone. It's a, it's a very typical panic buy. Uh, the other thing is that uh, today I checked with my colleague in, in a Gulu hospital. What happened is that I asked him, you know, the, the situation uh, in a patient uh, with COVID-19 infection. And it turned out that it's a very, very few patients in, in, in clinical or the uh, clinical wards or ICU because you don't see really that many severe cases. But in the uh, emergency clinic and uh, fever clinic is full of people. That is uh, to- totally packed. The reason is that when people find themselves uh, uh, in-, in fever or coughing, they all flock in. That's one of the problems. And uh, the hospitals and, and healthcare personnel have to, you know, persuade go back home because nothing serious happened. So this is 
good example that we need a, a good information package for people. Once you open up, they need those information to read, to guide themselves what to do if they become infected, if they are they're feeling uh, not well, instead of simply stepping into a hospital, into a clinic, because that would simply increase the, the, the virus dissemination. And you may even contract some other virus too. So uh, this is kind of thing, um, as we initially discussed, whether this open lab is quite, uh, you know, timing is quite, you know, abrupt. So I think it's very, very critical that we need to get a, the information package available for people and also the guideline for people who becoming sick or infected, what to do, what kind of medicine they really need instead of simply buying everything available in pharmacies. So this is something actually I think uh, when the authority does it, it, it can do much better than people simply logging into uh, Baidu and other uh, online because there is so much information Many of those information are not accurate, uh, exactly in certain aspects. So misguiding people on how they, they, they deal with the disease. Do you have any confidence in the government? Sure, yeah, yes. Uh, I think, you know, in the past two years, particularly uh, in the first and the second year of uh, the pandemic, the government had done tremendously effective uh, job in, in controlling the virus uh, infection of the of the, um, uh, the the country and bring down the, the death rates. Uh, the overall, um, all the intervention approach and the public health uh, measures are, are you know, uh, adequate uh, and, and doing the job. Um, but now, once it's opening, I think the government will have its resources and, and the resolve to deal with a large increase of of the infection cases and controlling uh, that the, that i think that's um, pretty much our guiding principle that uh, human life comes first mm. yeah um basically the society is actually experiencing a reset and we could use a little bit of faith here and with that we wrap up today's chat Many thanks to Professor Ujiwei, Director of the Center for Public Health Research at Nanjing University, Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations, East China Normal University, and Tommy Tsan Lam, Associate Professor, Division of Public Health Laboratory Sciences, University of Hong Kong, for sharing your insights with us. Please feel free to leave a review or a comment for us, and subscribe to the Chat Lounge wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tu Yun. Thank you for being with us. See you next week. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there.